Americans are known for being a largely warm and affectionate people. Americans readily embrace each other at parties and family gatherings. And even fans of sporting events will sometimes spontaneously embrace each other when their team has scored. So most hugs are welcomed, but sometimes one has to endure the socially awkward or undeniably weird hug. Today we will look at hugs, welcomed or otherwise, and then later on consider the new terms for dating. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. We frequently see primates do it in nature documentaries. And humans are nearly always obliged to do much the same at family gatherings. We are expected to open and extend our arms to embrace another human being with varying degrees of intensity for a squeeze. We call it hugging. If we are honest, most of us welcome such expression of warmth and delight. But once in a while, some of us have to endure an awkward, or as some might say, an out-and-out weird hug. I am very, very pleased indeed to have our next guest... On the programme Watching America, it's Emily Flake. Now, let me tell you a little bit about Emily Flake. She is a multifaceted, multi-talented person. Now, she has a sense of high comedy on three levels. Firstly, she illustrates. She's been a cartoonist, cartoonist for The New Yorker since 2008. But she also writes prose and essays, and she's written for such periodicals as The Wall Street Journal, uh, The New York Times, Globe and Mail and even Mad Magazine. She's also an author. Her former book was entitled Mama Tried, and now her latest venture is a book entitled That Was Awkward, The Art and Etiquette of Awkward Hugs. I also might point out that she also does stand-up comedy of a type, which is kind of a crossbreed with both both her illustrations and anecdotal information and uh, just verbal comedy as well. And so it is slightly unusual and distinctive. And most certainly, we are delighted to have her here today with us on Watching America. Welcome, Emily. Lovely to have you. Thank you so much for having me. You know, when I think about hugs, I think of a a, a famous personality, and and before your time, I'm quite sure, by the name of Leo Biscaglia. He wrote a little book uh, in the 1980s, which was called Love, or the late 70s, and he was the hug junkie. He just uh, hugged Mm -hmm. everybody. Are you familiar with him even remotely, perhaps? I loved Leo Biscaglia when I was a kid. Um, I'm 42, and my mom had all of those books on tape, and I used to listen to those uh, to go to sleep. Well, the man, when he finished a talk or he, he was giving uh, an address to people, would walk into the audience and he would be the recipient of at least 50 hugs and very often hundreds and hundreds. And I always wondered with some fascination what that would feel like. But I'm sure that some of them undoubtedly were awkward. Now, let me ask you, what, first of all, inspired you to write this book? Because I think we've all experienced the awkward hug and there's many variables which you go into quite interesting depth about. What was the genesis for this idea? Um, So the origin story of this book is actually uh, kind of funny. Um, An editor at Viking, uh, Brian Tart, had um, a book party for one of his authors, and at this party he he hugged the author, and it went, like, just completely pear-shaped. I don't even know the details of it. He was just like, all you need to know is that it didn't go well. And so he kind of had this, like, long, dark night of the soul just thinking about what he had done and just cringing. And being an editor, he was like, you know, this feels like it would make a good book. Um, and apparently my personal brand of awkwardness is so strong that when you think um, awkward moments, you think Emily Flake. So they um, they called me in and, and they were like, here is a book idea. Would you like to write it? And mind you, this has never been my experience in like the book world at all. Usually, you know, you have to like come up with a proposal and have it rejected a million times. This is the first time in my life anytime as, as, as anyone like asked me to write a book. Um, but I was like, this is 
extremely within my wheelhouse. So yes, I would love to do this. Well, one thing leads to the next, and and you certainly are continually building a lot of traction. Uh, I would say as an artist, because I, I uh, not only a, a illustrative artist, but also mm-hmm. as an artist. Period. I think your basic uh, personality lends itself to that, both in prose, on stage, and you know I can envision somebody like you possibly going on to write screenplays and what have you. Uh, mm-hmm. What was your first recollection of your own personal most awkward hug? Where did you start? I mean, you've got multiple examples here, which we will go through momentarily. But what was the first one that came to mind, and you thought, "Oh gosh, I remember that." I mean, I think it's just a general air of awkwardness more than anything else. There aren't that many. I mean, there are a few that really stick out in my mind as, you know, I don't know if I should say highlights or low points. Um, but I feel like every time I'm going to hug somebody, because like, I, I am naturally a hugger. I'm very physically affectionate, but I'm always sort of afraid that people will see how much I want to be hugged. Like, I'm afraid that the need will just sort of, like, you know, come out of my pores, like last night's whiskey. And, you know, it's a... <laughs> <laughs> so I feel like there's always that kind of push-pull of, like, desire and fear happening with me in any given social situation. Well, I, I said on a recent program, and it bears repeating, that I believe that most of us have concealed fears that we battle almost perpetually, constantly. Mm-hmm. And and we, we feel apologetic about natural needs. And the, the, the need to hug, I mean, it's it's primal. I mean, it really is. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see also in, in other species related to us, uh, with primates in general, we, we see the desire to hug and, and, and to um, get that flourish, if you will, of, of support and just... I don't know what other terms to use other than just uh, physical affirmation, but it has become incredibly awkward. Let me just share you a little a little scenario with you. Um, mm-hmm. Our producer Paul uh, Bebo and our executive, our senior producer actually, and executive producer, we're all in the hall, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, Gina Gamboni is the uh, senior producer. We're all in the hall, and we're all kind of going, you know, just chatting with each other. And there's this impromptu hug between Gina and I, and then suddenly I got transfixed and uptight and so I pulled away and it was very Mm. very awkward and I realized it had nothing to do with Gina Gamboni had nothing to do with the Mm. people there it's just the times that we're living in particularly for males that we we are on perpetual alert have you have you taken that into account as a new type of awkward hug oh for sure I mean I feel like it's it's conflicting times in terms of hugs because I feel like over the past like 10 or 20 years the hug has been has like gotten more currency just as a greeting. It seems like young people always just like hug each other goodbye and hello. Um, and so it's like less formal, but at the same time in the past couple of years, it's become this whole fraught, you know, like uh, occurrence too. So um, there's definitely a new awareness and therefore awkwardness about like, you know, is this an okay thing to do? Is this something, you know, that I'm going to get in trouble for? And I guess the only advice I have is it never hurts to ask. I mean, people are like, oh, but that makes it so weird, so awkward. Like, like, well, better to take like the tiny dose of awkwardness where you ask, can I hug you, than the terrible full meal of awkwardness where you hug somebody and realize like halfway through that they didn't want to be hugged. Right, right. Well, in your book, you start out basically with romantic uh, relational mm-hmm. e- eros hugs and, mm-hmm. and, and and the demise. You begin with talking about those who have received divorce papers, and you call right. it the recent ex's long-term relationship. And and you write some interesting things here, of course. You say, this is a hug born of a toxic brew, a physical force of habit, and a desire to keep things civil. But nonetheless, it's it's awkward. And then you go on to say, the saving grace of this hug is its brevity. No time for awkward equivocation here. You just have to deal with it. Um, in what settings does this transpire? Um, I think any time where you have like a, a rich emotional history with somebody, um, because, you know, when you have loved someone and then something happens to make that love curdle, it's like, it's such a, it's such a, I feel like I use the word parfait too often, but it's like a multi-layered um, emotional experience, you know, and I think the more uh, like experience that you have with somebody um, in such like close intimate quarters, the more like sour um, that feeling is when it, when it goes bad, you know, and in the case of like, you know, in this particular instance of people who have been married for a long time and have since split up, there's always just this 
Like, your bodies know each other so well. They're used to being in proximity and touching and everything, but you no longer want anything to do with this person. So it's just this this weird, terse nod towards the idea of hugging um, that just... It's, uh, I don't know. It's, I, are some of these I hugs, find it hilarious that I led with that. <laughs> are, are, are some of these hugs for the benefit of, of those who are around? For instance, you have the, you know, the, the son and daughter of a split marriage mm-hmm. and the couples come right. together and they've, they've, mm-hmm. both of them have their own spouses. And there is this perhaps awkward expectation that mom and dad, just for the sake of unity on their son's new wedding day, will embrace somehow. I mean, it, it, part of it is show, isn't it? Just to say, to, to put a pretense to the world, like, we are civil and we will indicate mm-hmm. it by hugging each other awkwardly, like two two by four pieces of wood. Right. Oh, absolutely. No, that's a definite, like, taking one for the team hug. Now, recent exes you talk about, the short-term relationship, can you elaborate mm-hmm. on that a bit? Um, so it's funny because I, you know, I've been married for, uh, 10 years and with my husband for 15. So like, I don't have any experience with a lot of like modern dating phenomena. Um, but this whole thing of ghosting is like, people did it in the nineties, but it (laughs) didn't really have a name. So ghosting is essentially when people don't exist anymore. You just drop them. Correct. Exactly. No explanation given. No, you know, you just like you just fail to return a text and and that's it. And apparently this is a really, you know, widespread phenomenon among like people who like, you know, go on a couple dates. And then instead of instead of saying like a polite, this isn't working out, you just stop talking to the person. But I feel like it's fairly rare that you have an encounter with someone and then you never see them again. So if you run into somebody who's ghosted you, do you like you know, do you gloss it over and everything's fine and you give them like a little everything's okay hug? Or do you make sort of the aggressive absence of a hug happen and and don't hug them at all? You talk about the flirty friend hug. Now, this mm-hmm. one I've experienced, okay? Uh, and I'm going to quote from your book. Everyone's got one of these in their real social circle. And you talk about a small smile that uh, is, is apparent at the corner of the person's mouth. This person is the fir- flirt. But crucially, this flirt is married or in a committed relationship and definitely not a cheater, just a person unable to keep their sexy little light under a bushel. It's so easy to mistake this hug for more than it is. It is so easy to take this hug as a low-key invitation to something seedy. But in fact, it isn't. Um, Is this an ego hug for people that enjoy this type of thing? The flirt is like, "Eh, you kind of like me, don't you? Is is, Is that part of it? think it is. I, I have a couple different people in mind when I when I wrote that. And one of them is actually like my husband's business partner who is has been a friend forever. And he I don't think he knows he does it, but okay. he really locks into you when he's talking to you and like looks at you intently like you are the most important person. Um and he is hanging on your every word. And he's well, it's it's his little small smile that I was thinking of because everybody that I know who knows him, it always has this, comes away from a conversation with him feeling a little flushed, like they've been flirted with in a, in a really non-invasive way. Uh-huh. Um, and I don't think it's intentional. I think that's just how he is, because he's been married for, I don't know, probably 30 years, and uh, there's never been a hint of any impropriety. But it's just this, this, this shine that he has. Sure. Well, I, I think that that is something that some males experience. Um, mm-hmm. uh, we can be misconstrued and misread. I'm a chatty man. And uh, as my wife warns me, because I'm a chatty man, some women misconstrue my chattiness as, as more of an interest than is actually there. I just generally like to talk to people, men and women. And so this is the physical counterpart you're describing then with a person mm-hmm. who's just warm, cuddly, and it can be misconstrued. Oh, for sure. And I think that something that we have to do is just build in an understanding of of social gray areas where intent won't always be clear and you will sometimes be misunderstood or misunderstand somebody and they're just you have to leave a certain amount of wiggle room or grace in your social interactions because just nobody is going to be perfectly understood or or understandable all the time. 
Okay. Well, then you talk about the tum tum factor, which is the problem mm-hmm. of the proverbial pot belly, uh, which mm-hmm. many of us on this planet, on terma, terra firma, uh, have to battle with. <laughs> and you call it the Falstaffian charm, which is so delightful and kind of you. I just can't thank you <laughs> enough for that one. Um, tell me your experience with tummy tums. Um, I'm a big fan of uh, pot belly on a man. Um, and I, I'll send I you feel pictures. That- Excellent. <laughs> so, but I was talking to um, a friend who has a, a very pleasant little pot belly, and he was, and he has recently re-entered the dating pool and was, and was kind of bemoaning the fact that, like, when he hugs a woman goodbye, there's, you know, he kind of has to figure out what to do with this pot belly that wasn't there the last time he was single. And I guess, you know, physically, it does sort of, you know, kind of create this this barrier. Um, and I am aware that not everybody loves the pot belly as much as I do, which is really too bad. Now you talk about the bro hug. Tell me about mm-hmm. that. Um, so that's just the, and this is one that I enjoy watching just because it's, it's so kind of sweet and sad to watch two men, you know, of, and not to paint with too broad a brush, but two kind of like, you know, basic dudes who don't have a whole lot of them or comfortableness with physical expression because you can tell they want to hug but they have to do this thing where they just kind of like bounce their bodies off each other and slap each other's backs really quickly yes so yeah. in a way that's kind of like we're wrestling kind of but also i i love you in a very bro kind of way um so yeah i i feel like it's just like watching a toddler try to walk you know like you know they're going to screw it up but it's 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 cute We are speaking with Emily Flake, who has written a very interesting book called That Was Awkward, The Art and Etiquette of Awkward Hugs. And I think that one of the charming things about your book is, yes, there is a a kind of a Irma Bombeckish element to your style of writing. uh, Thank you. Well, yes, definitely. Very observational and and true. And therein lies um, the, I think, the pithiness of this is that it is true. There is a sadness to men not being able to embrace and, and touch each other. The only place that I see in American culture it is regularly permitted is on the football field. Okay, mm-hmm. if it's the NFL, men can slap each other, punch each other, even talk, touch each other's bums, frankly. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And that's permissible. But in American culture, there's a tremendous uh, reluctance for two to show any affection to, to each other, uh, males. Then you have what you call the panic hug, uh, which I found mm-hmm. very intriguing. You say that years ago, this happened uh, to you, that you'd run into the mother of a, of a recent ex on the street, and she was... Uh, to put it mildly, much more distraught about the breakup than than you had anticipated, and you found yourself in an awkward predicament of not knowing whether to hug, and and, and you kindly kindly held the person, and as you described it, they had a, a the back of a tiny squirrel head because yeah. it was so, so you took the the in the palm of your hand you took the entire skull if you will uh, tell us about that oh god that was that was really probably one of the like top five awkward hugs of my life. Um, so this was a guy I had dated like right after high school and I ran into his mom on my way to work. I worked at the library at the time and I hugged her and yeah, like I didn't mean to put my hands on the back of her head, but she was, she was tiny and I didn't, I hadn't really planned out how to, to hug her. Um, and I was already just absolutely on fire with, with social anxiety because I'm like, what do you, this middle-aged woman is crying at me because of something I did. So it was, it was just 360 degrees of, of social terror. Let's talk about the hippie uncle. All right. They're out there. And there might be a hippie auntie as well. Um, Yeah, they're still there. Give me your take on that. Um, This might just be my own personal animosity towards hippies. Um, A friend of mine put it, put it, very succinctly and beautiful, beautifully where, um, you know, his whole thing is that um, punks are uh, nice people pretending to be mean and hippies are mean people pretending to be nice. That's interesting. Um, I've always felt that there was something, you know, like very performative about like this sort of like boomer hippie thing where it's all supposed to be peace and love. And then, you know, fast forward 20 years later and they're all captains of Wall Street or, you know, um, ice cream magnets. but yeah, so that was that was just my personal petty way to take a swipe at the at the rack of rapidly disappearing um, aging hippies. 
Ah, uh, well, that's a threatening statement for some people out there. Um, hippies, hippies do <laughs> not die; they just fade away. Uh-huh. All right, all right. So let's talk about some some other ones that you mentioned here. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm tempted to have a little bit of fun with you because you mentioned English people, my people mm-hmm. group. But we'll but we'll we'll go to that in a moment, uh, a little bit later. Mm-hmm. Now, the one which I've, I've found the most becoming and beguiling and absolutely delightful, as you describe it, is the toddler hug. And you write, mm-hmm. and I quote. Even if you hate kids, a hug from a toddler feels like a gift, a sticky gift, but a gift nonetheless. An endorsement from a person too young to judge you on anything but whether you're scary. It's hard to even make it awkward because the two-year-olds don't have any emotional baggage. Now, this is one of these, you know, things that are obviously is part of your your essays that you're writing here, and and true, and uh, but it's actually incredibly deep. I find a lot of what you say is actually amazingly deep, and people superficially could disregard it and just say, "Oh, it's a cute little book." It's not. You're actually saying some very, very um, valid, deep things. Oh, I thought you. about oh. this, you know, like when you mm-hmm. read a poem and you put the poem aside and you place it down on the on the sidearm of your chair and you think about it for a while. Mm-hmm. That's the effect that your little bit here on toddler hugs had on me because I thought she's mm-hmm. absolutely completely right. Tell um, me about your children and other people's uh, children and hugs. So I've I've just got the one. Um, she's seven, and she she has always been like uh, really good with strangers, you know, very quick to warm up to people. She's also a hugger. Uh, So, uh, but I know that like, you know, especially before I had kids and I was very like, I didn't really know what to do around them. And toddlers often, uh, they're not as outgoing as as my kid and they would kind of shy away from me because I'm a stranger. And that always felt like they could see deeply into my soul and they knew I was nobody they wanted to be around. So when a toddler would just sort of like, you know, blithely and happily, you know, crawl into my lap, I was, uh, it sort of made me feel like maybe I, I wasn't just sort of emitting some kind of um, personal horribleness. Mm-hmm. And and because they're incapable really of of the kind of self-consciousness that makes that that leads to awkwardness, I think there's sort of a lesson to be to be learned there that they haven't learned to regard themselves. Yes. So they they don't they don't get in their own way when they need to express something they just express it there's that lovely phase of what i call the oshkosh corduroy overalls that they wear mm-hmm. and, and we all and, i know uh, and it's just delightful i mean uh, i i have a habit which only my family knows about and now the world as i'm sharing this <laughs> i i from the moment my children were born our children um i kept the bassinet beside the bed uh, all night long I would burp them, and I, I developed right. a habit of biting them, biting them on the cheek. I mm-hmm. haven't stopped, okay? I, right. my, I have a, two sons who are far away. I have three sons, actually, one closer to me. And every time I see them, I embrace them, and I hug them, and I kiss them, and I bite them on the cheek. Because my attitude mm-hmm. is like, why stop? Go into the mother-son hug for me and explain about the, the dubious element of embarrassment, inevitable embarrassment that sons feel, particularly in the, in the presence of friends. Right. And I'm sure this is definitely, girls feel this too, but, you know, I know that a time is coming when I just, I won't have unrestricted access to her body. And I mean, I made her body inside my body. So it's just insane to me to think that like, there's a person whose butt I used to wipe on a many times a day basis. Like her body just feels like an extension of, of mine. Yes. But at some point I will go to to hug her or touch her and she will be embarrassed by this you know and i i use the mother son um example because i figure i'm sure that like you know when you have boys it's the same thing at some point the child has to physically sever themselves from the parents in a way that is necessary for them but you know kind of traumatic for the parents so i know that that's coming um I can't quite believe it because, you know, she is such a cuddle bug, but it's it, it's going to happen. Well, the thing of it is, is that I think that with with the recognition of, of age between the generations, it causes for, for us to have different types of hugs. One of the things I was also touched by was your reference to the fact that, you know, you have the middle-aged child and the mm-hmm. older parent. And there's a wonderful line uh, – by Bonnie Rayet, or not by Bonnie Rayet, but she at least sings it, a song called In the Nick of Time. 
And mm-hmm. um, I, I think that's the right title. And she talks about seeing her parents and they see her and they both feel rather awkward by the way they look and they both feel strange. And that does happen. Um, you know, I, I've, with, with our own children, my wife and I, with our three sons, I can tell that they're, they're stressed when they see more gray in, in our mm-hmm. hair, in my hair. And right. uh, it's, it's a facet. How do hugs change through the years? Well, I mean, I feel like you you're sort of forced to reckon with your parents' mortality as as they become frailer and frailer, and then by extension, you're forced to to reckon with your own mortality, and it just makes you realize. I mean, this is a cliche, but my God, we just have so little time, um, and especially if you had like a close and loving relationship with your parents, you know, I feel like that hug kind of takes on this like autumnal sadness, uh, like uh, an awareness that, you know, that every hug might be the last. I was struck by the illustrations that you draw. I I, I actually love them. They're very, uh, what I call warm and oval, and um, they, they, they beckon to another era, quite frankly, something mm-hmm. illustrations from the 30s or the 40s. And I don't know if this is a conscious... Thing on your part, because after all, you are an illustrator for the for the New Yorker mm-hmm. and have been, and there's a, a standard series of different styles for the New Yorker mm-hmm. cartoons. But there's there's a general warmth, lovely kind of former era look and softness to your illustrations, which which I think are quite glorious. Mm-hmm. How did you arrive at that style? Um, it's funny. I I wouldn't have realized this until you know just a few years ago, um, but I was. Uh, a huge uh, Sherry Flanagan fan when I was a kid. Um, she mm. was a cartoonist for um, National Lampoon, and my parents, you know, or my dad had uh, copies of National Lampoon lying around when I was a kid. Um, not that that's remotely appropriate for a child to read, but I, I was exposed to a lot of age-inappropriate content as a child, which I think is a net good. Um, and I really loved Sherry Flanagan's style. And it wasn't until like a few years ago that I realized I've been subconsciously like biting it for ages. Yes. Um, But I, I have always loved, I mean, I love that sort of like, you know, retro, uh, like, you know, seemingly uh, charming and artless uh, style. I mean, there are a bunch of people um, who I feel like are, are unreachable geniuses that kind of, um, do the same thing. I mean, Chris Ware has a, a similar, I mean, I feel like comparing myself to Chris Ware is just insane, but you know, he has a, that, that kind of throwback aesthetic to his work as well. The sort of like little orphan Annie eyes to help, help underscore that aesthetic as well. For those just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and Emily Flake is my guest. She has written a book called That Was Awkward, The Art and Etiquette of Awkward Hugs. I want to ask you about one particular time in your career when you worked for MAD, MAD Mm -hmm. Magazine. Um, Mad Magazine, as we hear recently, has fallen on some curious bad times. It looks like Mm -hmm. after 68 years, um, we may never see Alfred E. Newman again. How do you feel about that? And what was like, what was it like supplying material for Mad Magazine? Oh, I mean, it's very, very sad if they, if they really do like shuffle off this mortal coil. I think it's a, it's a great loss. Um, I was lucky enough to submit to them and, and get some work in there. And they were the nicest, like, most generous, caring people I have ever had the pleasure of working for. Um, just and, and, you know, gave good, honest feedback. You know, there was nothing, you know, nobody, like, blew sunshine up my butt at all. But it was like, okay, here's what we like. Here's what we can do. Um, and every time I went by the office, it was just, you know, it was really, like, like a warm homecoming, um, just absolutely lovely. And then when they moved to California, um, pretty much everybody who worked on staff in New York uh, stayed behind. And I feel like in some ways that was that was the beginning of the end. Um, I feel like it was kind of folded awkwardly into its parent company and maybe not given, I don't know if it wasn't given the resources or if it was just, you know, it's very hard to replace an entire crew of people, yes, um, yes and yes. and continue to make the same um, the same publication. Well, let's steer back. Thank you for the uh, little side amble that we took there. Let's steer back sure. now to the main path. Talking about your book, 
that was awkward, the art and etiquette of awkward hugs. You address the first part of the book dealing with uh, what I would consider relatively intimate relationships, family members mm-hmm. and romantic figures, etc. And then you, in the middle of the book, you, you start to entertain the idea of, of the work environment. What do you make of people who are perhaps overly gregarious and expressive in the workplace and uh, prone to wanting to hug for virtually any reason at all. And sometimes one may suspect that it's 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 fraudulent and it's fake. How should right. one handle that? You know, I think a lot of it, I mean, obviously, you know, the whole Me Too movement, I think, was, was necessary. And I think it's sort of rooting out um, a lot of, of longstanding practices but I think more to the point, like people are like, oh, well, I can't do this. I can't do that anymore. I don't think it's that you can't. I think it just people are being asked to examine the power dynamics between themselves and the people that they work with. And I think that there are definitely people who use sort of an affectionate physicality to sort of establish dominance. Um, I don't necessarily think that those are people who are, are, are capable of the kind of self-reflection that would lead them to change their behavior on their own. Um, and I would also uh, go further and, and assume that, like, if you are the person who's kind of an aggressive hugger, that you would be very defensive if you were called out on it. But I feel like if if that is your behavior, then it, it kind of has to be addressed, especially now, you know, when we're really examining, like, you know, what all these interactions mean. You mentioned the phrase aggressive hugger. There is the kind mm-hmm. of male hugger who uh, is kind of innately salesman-ish, uh, who comes over and grabs you by the arm and then kind of sways your body to and fro. like, hey, how you doing, guy? Mm-hmm. Good to see right, you. Put it there. Right. And they keep pounding mm-hmm. you back in your shoulder and they pull you in and mm-hmm. almost do the Vulcan, you know, pinch from Star Trek. Right. Um, <laughs> what's that about? Is it just pure aggression, like establishing dominance? Oh, I think so. Absolutely. I mean, have you seen the videos of, of Trump pulling that with various world leaders? Yeah, um, I actually yeah. have. I think you're right. Yeah, and I then, would agree. You know, young, hale and hearty Justin Trudeau kind of tops him, you know, and it's, it's a, you know, Say what you will about Justin Trudeau, that it's a it's a beautiful thing to watch. Well, now we if we've getting political here. We've got to talk about Biden. What about Biden mm-hmm. with, the, with the huggy things? I mean, he's <laughs> oh. Uncle Joe has, uh, in the eyes of many, overstepped the line. How do, how do you interpret My that? God. I mean, are, are for all intents and purposes Trump and Biden mm-hmm. the same, but with different right. flavors? You know, I feel like I'm willing to give Joe Biden the benefit of the doubt in in the fact that. Either he means well or thinks he means well, but I also think that he probably has not really spent the time to, you know, examine his his behavior, especially, you know, vis-a-vis women or underlings or people um, for whom he just feels a certain, certain, like, right of access. I think it's an unexamined privilege, let's say. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I do not think for the slightest moment that he has anything menacing intended in it. I, I think... Perhaps to both men, we can af- afford a degree of of ignorance about what what they're doing. What about the the European air kiss hug? Now Europeans do this, you know. It's mm-hmm. and um, now some people will, will try and go a little bit further. That you know, there's the man who tries to kiss uh, on on the ear, you know, and is mm-hmm. like that. Right. And then you have the air kiss, which usually the French are very good at air kissing back and forth. Right. The Italians just actually kiss, you know, mm, mm, right. on both sides. And even mm-hmm. males would do that sometimes in Italy. Um, it really hasn't borne its way much into American culture other than in the Hollywood set, other than right. in entertainment field. Right. Oh, I think because America has such a, a weird sort of dual history of like, you know, uh, Puritanism and Libertinism. So we have this, you know, this weird sort of like push-pull between like um, a, a kiss being hard to parse in terms of like, it. well, is it is it sexy or not? Um, and yeah, I, I have, because I didn't grow up in like a cheek kiss culture, every time I am in a cheek cheek kiss culture, I just, I just ruin it. Um, my husband and I have been to Argentina a few times and they are, they're cheek kiss people. And even between men, it's just, this very casual and nobody yes. makes a big deal about it. Right. But I have definitely managed to whack some Argentinians on the forehead and it's, 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 
humiliating. Have you ever had this terrible experience, which I have had, and that is you do the air kiss thing or, or on the cheek kiss, and then you, so you've done the left-hand side cheek, and now you make your way over to the, hopefully the right-hand side cheek to kiss, mm-hmm. and your lips smack into each other, and, and then it's a quick withdrawal, like, oh, God, I didn't mean to make lip contact with you. Mm-hmm. And then you don't know whether to, in a nanosecond, whether to follow through now with the right-hand side kiss or right. just abort the whole thing. It can be oh, extremely awkward. A hundred percent. I have had that happen. Well, your book, Emily, is, is an utter delight. I want to ask you one last question, and that mm-hmm. is, in the preparation of this book, and as I've said, you are um, Irma Bombeck-esk, in the way Mm -hmm. that you write and observe things. There is a a serious thread through much of this. Was there anything that struck you particularly significant that wasn't perhaps necessarily related to mirth in any way about a hug that you left out? You know, I don't think there's anything that I necessarily left out. Um, I do think that I like to put sort of, you know, I, I tried to do this in, in um, I wrote a book of cartoons and essays called Mama Tried about parenting. And I kind of tried to do this with, with that as well, because that was a humorous book. But to sort of end it with an acknowledgement of just the sadness of, of being human mm. and the fact that we are, we're none of us alone in this. I mean, I feel like that is the underlying engine that, that kind of runs everything that, that I try to do. Um, so I feel I, I, I feel like I kind of kept that subtextual in most of the book, um, but was more explicit with it in the end, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Emily, it has been absolutely wonderful to talk to you, and I'm going to ask you, please, that you will visit us again with your next publication, absolutely. because we readily welcome that. We've been speaking with Emily Flake, and her book is entitled That Was Awkward, The Art and Etiquette of Awkward Hugs. On the surface, it is genuinely funny, but if you look a little bit deeper, you will find significance of, well, elements that deserve further weight and consideration. I actually, a couple of times when reading this book, thought about the pithy expression of things that she had addressed, and I had put the book down for a moment and laid it aside to consider weightier issues than would be readily acknowledged on the surface of it. Emily Flake, thank you so very much. I wish you great blessings and want to talk to you again with your next venture. Thank you so much for having me. This was wonderful. Great. Thank you. From the Chuck Paris stages in Hollywood, California, it's The Dating Game. And here's the star of the show and your host, Jim Flagg. In the 1960s, Jim Lang hosted The Dating Game. It was quite simple. A series of questions and then, well, a prospective date. That was half a century ago. Today, social media has created an ever-increasing complexity in the dance of love. And no one knows this better than my guest, Lisa Bonos. She is a writer for the Washington Post. She contributes to an article and series called Relationships in the section of the paper where people look for such things. She also has a podcast from the Washington Post about the joys and conundrums of being single. Welcome to Watching America, Lisa Bonos. Wonderful to have you here. Oh, great to be here. I I, I was absolutely taken with the article from May 20th, <laughs> 2019, and uh, I am thrilled to have you. And I, I need clarification. Um, and I'm sure that there are multitudes out there that need the same clarification. Now, today, people can use Tinder and Facebook and what have you, but there are terms that have been invoked which are absolutely alien to to many of us, and uh, even to some who moderately might have an understanding of what these terms mean, uh, still has some area of confusion. Now, fortunately, you cleared it up for us, so you're the expert. I want to start (laughs) by asking, what is career-zoned? It's a verb. What does that mean? Sure. This is when someone rejects you romantically but wants to connect professionally, and it's sort of a natural hazard of living in Washington, D.C., where everyone's networking all the time. So you you might be rejected by a Tinder date and then get a LinkedIn request from him two days later. And it can can hurt. 
I'm, I'm sure because it's this, you know, implied expectation of possibly something leading to something and you just simply will find up, wind up feeling used. Talk about textual chemistry. Yes, this is so common. It's where two people might have just really great banter by text. Uh, they haven't met yet. And then when you meet in person, there's just no connection. I had this once with someone who was really good by text. And then in person, he couldn't make eye contact with me. And I found it really hard to maintain a conversation like that. So that's, that's textual chemistry. Well, they talk about the languages of love. And uh, even though it's using <laughs> technically the same language, that the, the, the deployment of that language of love can be very, very different. We find that, you know, even with colleagues, I think, when, you know, you can have people you work with or people you encounter and can be very articulate, perhaps even for both in written form, and you get together with them and nothing comes out of the mouth. So when it's of a romantic nature, how even more disappointing. Now, this one is my favorite. Okay, well, there are multiple favorites, okay, so I'll contradict myself. But this is what the first one where I went, yes, 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 to my wife and said, yes, I understand this completely. Soul mining. I love this one. Yes. Please explain it to I, everybody. Okay, so I have to tell you first that a Tinder date of mine coined this term. We somehow became Facebook friends after one date. And uh, we have a lot of mutual friends, so, but he, uh, he helped me with this term. So it's when someone tries to cram three months or so of emotional intimacy into maybe your three hours together. <laughs> it can be really exciting when someone wants to, you know, shows up on a first date and says, let's do the 36 questions to fall in love. But then when you never hear from them again, you're like, why did I give away all my deepest, darkest secrets to somebody I barely know? I have a confession to make. I think the reason why I like this one so much is I recognize... Are you my... a soul miner? You're I will, a soul I mean, miner. I, I've been married married for decades, but I, I, I have the inclination, even with friends, it's like, okay, I want to know everything about you now. You know, so... Uh, well, but I, a, I don't drop people. With a friend, I think that makes that's okay, and that makes some sense. But with somebody you hardly know... You might not want to give away all of your personal. Yeah, well, I, I, my my, my uh, tactic is I, I want to become friends very very quickly. So it's a natural inclination. Mm. It's part of the reason I do these shows. I think so. Can I become friends with you, Lisa? Oh, of course. Oh, okay. <laughs> we're, we're no <laughs> so, go I further. Mean, no a, go further than that. Okay. Now, heart. It's a little. I think it's like a little bit of a professional hazard of being a journalist, right? You want to get to the story. You want to get to know everything about someone and what makes them tick and Precisely. But, and and it sounds like you might be a little bit like that yourself, Lisa. And you know what happens to us is we lose out because, uh, you know, we wind up, you know, really not being able to divulge much much about ourselves. And we we investigate, investigate, investigate. Uh, and then you come away from the meal or the dinner or whatever it is and you think like, huh, you know, um, I lost out, too, because because of your own inquisitiveness. So uh, interesting. Now, this is a good one. Heart bargain. Now, what is a heart yeah. bargain? It's when uh, someone, maybe a lawyer or a law student, might try to reason their way out of a breakup or into a relationship or a marriage proposal. Um, so, you know, somebody might... Constant negotiation? Yes. I mean, I try to I try to heart bargain men out of breaking up with me all the time. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Wow. Okay. And so you give a very interesting example where, you you know, you may want to propose marriage and somebody else and says, well, let's go away for a weekend. And, and they basically yeah. bargain that. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Would you say that's more cerebral kind of personalities or just simply calculating? No, I would say that it would be it's common with cerebral types because you can't reason emotion, right? And that's a lot of what relationships are all about. Right, right. Feelings. Here's a good one. O W L. Owl. What is owling or when one is an owl? <laughs> what someone is an owl when they text someone when they know that person probably isn't going to get back to them. Maybe it's 3 in the morning and they're asleep and they're not necessarily looking for a booty call. But they just—they're so busy all day long. The only time they could think to text is when the person they're texting is not available. Um, problem is, if you can't find a time to even communicate in real time, how will you ever meet up? Instabate. This one struck me as extremely interesting. Explain what uh, uh, instabating <laughs> is. Yes, that is when someone might upload Instagram stories. So those are. Do you know how? Do you know Instagram? Do you use Instagram? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so those 
images disappear or videos disappear in 24 hours. So, and you can see who's looked at your Insta story. So it's uploading Instagram stories to prod someone to get in touch with you. Like, look how cool my life is and all these fun things I'm doing. Don't you want to be a part of it? I did this once with a a man I dated who was hard. He wasn't the best communicator. And whenever I wanted to hear from him, I would just upload a bunch of Insta stories about my fabulous day. And all of a sudden he'd be texting me and wanting to hang out. So It's, it's really um, like being your own publicist. Mm-hmm. Yes. Now let's go on to the faux bow. I like the way it rhymes. The phobo. Okay, what's the phobo? The phobo is um, a man, or it could be a woman, who acts like a significant other, but all as a ruse just to continue hooking up. So he might introduce me to his friends and his parents and bring me into his life, and then all of a sudden say he wasn't ready for a relationship. And that would be a phobo, kind of like a act, action speaking differently than his words. Okay, I need clarity on this one. So just as an excuse to continue hooking up, uh, there's two ways we could interpret this. Either Mm -hmm. he has a fake girlfriend or she is a fake boyfriend to bring home to parents or introduce and say, look, I have a serious relationship. Meanwhile, he's going off or she's going off playing the field. Or it could mean have sexual access with the uh, facade of being serious about a person taking them to their parents. Which which way do you mean it? True. Well, I think it could go both ways. Oh, I've expanded your definition. And that's fine. I want credit yeah. for that. Okay, very good. Okay. <laughs> now we go <laughs> on to the popsicle. Oh, yeah. Um, so, this is when your instinct is to play it the opposite of cool. So that'd be me. I'm like very obvious when I'm into someone, but I might try to play hard to get. But since that doesn't come naturally to me at all, I, I would act so chill that the object of my affection deems me uninterested and moves on. Do you they, want an example for this yeah, one? Yeah, please give us an example. Okay. Yes. All right. I'm I'm really into Sam, but I popsicled too hard. He got a brain freeze and stopped texting back. Ooh. Okay. 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 Well, we've already established I'm a soul miner. Okay. So that means that you can share <laughs> yeah. all kinds of things from your, from your, your experiences. We continue to talk here. Um, so the, the popsicle is basically overcalculating, trying to appear cool when in fact, as a result, subsequently you actually lose the possibility of having the very relationship you want. Correct? Yeah. Okay. It's so sad. It yeah. is sad. And now, now I'm going to do a little bit of mining here. Do you find that it's exhausting to play these types of games? For sure. And you know, this, He's sort of like is poking fun at that, right? Yes. Like you can try to not play games and say that you're not playing games. I think I used to be a much straight, more straightforward dater. Well, have you Probably. learned to appreciate the games? Are you a good yes, game player? A little bit, ah. yeah. Because I've, I am, I am the person who, if you text me and you want to go out, my inclination is to text you back immediately. But I have learned <laughs> to not be so available, you know? Like, there is some power in silence So you're actually sometimes. saying that, that game playing is necessity <laughs> for survival. I, sometimes it is, yeah. Social squatter. This one I found incredibly intriguing. Yeah, oh, I love this one. Okay, so this is if someone breaks up with you but wants to keep seeing your friends platonically. Mm. Understandable, mm-hmm. because my friends are so awesome, but totally unacceptable. Now... Last and not least, of, of course, we have the final definition of your lexicon, TED, which is a noun. Tell us what TEDing yeah. is or being a TED. <laughs> being a TED is someone who doesn't realize that a grand gesture that might look you know, really sexy on screen in a movie or something, um, like when TED was Ben Stiller's character in There's Something About Mary, goes to extreme lengths to maybe track down his high school crush or something. Doing that is actually super creepy when you do it in real life. Yes. yes. And, yeah, a, a friend pointed out to me that this could also appear to, like, in, in less severe cases, like Ted Mosby from the sitcom How I Met Your Mother. He mm-hmm. was, like, a hopeless romantic. Um, but sometimes he did things that came off a little stalkery in his pursuit <laughs> uh, of women. So uh, being a Ted. Just a little clueless in how your actions might land. Well, you have clarified a potential minefield for uh, for those who are uh, in the game of trying to find suitable partners and friends and, and lovers indeed. So let me just ask you this. Is there any term that you have not coined, but some experience that you think, mm, there needs to be a definition hmm. for this experience? Hmm. 
Oh, that's a good question. I think, you know, after I was working on this story, I actually started another file because I had so many terms that they wouldn't all fit into <laughs> one story and why I'm unleash them all at once. But now I'm going to have to look for that if I can find it here. Oh, the stamp collector, someone who brags about travel constantly and maybe that they ran out of pages in their passport. They can't fit them all. I mean, this is something you find in Washington, D.C. a lot. Ah, uh, yes, right. I'm man I of the world, woman of the world. I went to 42 countries last year. Uh, the jet setters that take yeah. a train. Yes. Oh, here's another one. So the man or woman who carries on a conversation sort of on their own on a date and rarely asks the first date any questions about themselves. Uh, but then, yeah, but then yeah. wants to go out with the person again. And it's kind of a little bit of a whiplash. Like, you didn't ask me anything about myself in right. the first two hours we spent together. I didn't think you were interested in me, and yet you want to go out again? I'm toying with, like, calling that the monologuer or yeah. the solo act or it's, something it's like, like the, that. It's like the old joke, you know, oh, I've been talking about myself so much. Let me ask you a question. What do you think of me? Yeah. Listen, uh, Lisa Bonos has been with us and I hope she'll come back and visit us again. You are an utter charm and a delight. And it's been so much fun learning these these new terms and making them part of uh, uh, a new vernacular for those who are uh, still in the dating scene. I just want to thank you so tremendously for bringing mirth and laughter to uh, to sometimes what's a very serious thing for people trying to find the right person out there. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. It's been great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our producer, Paul Bebo. Our senior producer is Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I'm watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and I'd like to take this opportunity to thank you for your kind and considerate contributions that make this show possible. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.